This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit tractioncp.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and investors to learn how to acquire and run companies. For more information, visit alexbridgman.com. My guests today come from the recently created ESOP holding company called Empowered Ventures, which today owns TVF, a textiles company in Indianapolis. Chris Fredericks is the president of TVF and Empowered Ventures, and will be joined by Spencer Springer full-time, once Spencer's MBA program with Northwestern is wrapped up. During this episode, we talk about pros and cons operating an ESOP and using it to acquire companies, how they build an employee-owned culture, and some of their plans for Empowered Ventures. Chris and I connected late last year, and I knew it would turn into a podcast one day, and I'm very glad it has. One other note, you might notice my closing questions happen two-thirds of the way through the episode and not at the end. Our trains of thought just continued, and I hope you like the results. Enjoy. Can you walk us through both of your backgrounds and then how you eventually connected to it with each other and then what you're building with Empowered Ventures? Sure. Yeah. So my background, grew up here, uh, central Indiana, went to IU, uh, majored in accounting, went to a mid-regional accounting firm for five years for getting my CPA. That was BKD. And then left there, just decided public accounting wasn't my future career path, went into a a small private company called Top Value Fabrics. And there I ended up moving up to the CFO role within a few years. And then the owner at the time, his name was Dick Hansel. He gave me a lot of opportunities to help the business advance. And one of the things that he ended up asking me to help with was his succession planning. And with his succession planning, he had had uh, quite a few attempts before to figure it out. He didn't have any family in the business. He had tried a few management buyouts that that failed. And so that he was kind of feeling stuck and he also had some health issues coming on. So he asked me to help him figure it out. This was in about 2000, late 2009. I ended up proposing ESOP. I wasn't really familiar with ESOPs before, but as I got familiar with it, I thought it sounded like a terrific option for him. So I presented the plan. He luckily went along with it. And I ended up working on that transaction for the next six to nine months. And we ended up accomplishing a 100% sale to the ESOP October 2010. So with that change, I ended up becoming president of TVF and have led TVF since then as an employee-owned company. So how that ends up leading to Empowered Ventures and to, to Spencer joining. So a few years later, probably five years later, after a good number of years of success as an employee-owned company, which I'm sure we can dig into more if, if you'd like, I was thinking about what the future holds for TVF, knowing that as an employee-owned company, uh, we have a lot of people that are really ambitious and want to do interesting and, and fun projects. And also with the success we were having, knowing that we were probably going to have resources we needed to figure out how to deploy and what to do with. So I just started thinking about acquiring companies 
and especially diversifying through acquisition. And so that was on my mind 2015, 2016, but we still had plenty to work on at TVF. But over the last couple of years, I started getting really serious about that idea and uh, talked to our, my board of directors about it, and they were very supportive. So last year, we started an action plan to launch Empowered Ventures, and that basically has uh, recently fully transpired. You know, new website, Spencer joining, and now we're kind of off and running. Excellent. Spencer, how about you? Yeah, so I was uh, working for a very successful private equity firm here in Chicago. And uh, on my way to work one morning, my mom called me and she said, you know, I, I have this business. She built a really nice home health care services company and said, I, you know, I want to retire soon. What can I do with my business? And I said, well, mom, we could probably try to sell it so you can have some money to help you retire. And she said, great. We can put it on a site like eBay, right? And uh, I was like, well, mom, we could, but, you know, if we want to do it right, we should, you know, it's going to take a lot of work and prepare the company for sale. And fast forward six months, I, uh, I left my private equity job to help my mom uh, grow her company, prepare for sale, and then lead the sale process. Uh, and we ended up selling it last year to a $5 billion public company. So it was a really nice outcome for her. Uh, and as we're nearing the end of that sale process, I enrolled in Northwestern's uh, one-year MBA program. And that was really focused to um, uh, have that transition of, you know, I want to go do something more entrepreneurial. And around that time, I connected with Chris and what he was building with Empower Ventures. And I was like, wow, I wish, you know, uh, Chris was available when we were leading the sale of my mom's business, because that would have been the ideal buyer an outcome of how do you reward your employees, but also get a, a really nice outcome for the seller. And, and we can talk more about that uh, later, but it was, it was, I just didn't see that when we're going, when we're going to market with her business, there's a lot of private equity interest. We got a lot of interest obviously and sold to a large public company, but there, there wasn't that hybrid model that we really found. And so when I, when I met with Chris uh, and learned what he was building, I was like, wow, this is truly unique and special. And I think it's going to be really differentiated as you, as he looks to build a firm. So what did your mom care about in selling her business? And was there were there certain things she looked for in a buyer? You know, I, the she built the business from scratch. And so um, she a couple things were her, her big priorities. One, what's going to happen with her business in the future? She just didn't want it to become part of some big conglomerate. And in this case, um, the, with the public company, it was going to be more of a standalone platform company. That's what appealed to her. But she was focused on what was her legacy going to be? How could she reward her employees? How can she reward the people that helped her build this great business? And I think lastly, she said, I, I want to get a market price for my business. I'm not going to take a huge discount to meet those first two criteria. I want to make sure I'm getting a, a fair price. So I think each of those three things, we as we looked at private equity groups, we looked at strategic acquirers. You know, I, I think we did really well at the end of the day, but we didn't. I, I think all of us would say we didn't perfectly check all three boxes like other firms, like what Empowered Ventures is doing could actually do. Gotcha. So then, so explain more of the ESOP model. Um, I only have a basic understanding, but how does that model work? And then how does Empowered Ventures build on that? Right. So an ESOP is an employee stock ownership plan. I think probably a lot of people are familiar with it, but maybe don't fully understand kind of what it really is. So an ESOP is a tax qualified retirement plan. It's really similar to a 401k plan that owns the stock of the business. An ESOP, essentially, the way it works is employees receive an annual allocation of shares, and that's the retirement benefit that the company provides. 
and the the shares of the company were are spread out over the course of some long period of time. In TVF's case, Empowered Ventures case, that's 25 years, and that started in 2010. So there's like a it's essentially a level amount of shares that annually get allocated to all the employees, and then those shares are revalued annually by an independent valuation firm. So employees actually receive a statement every year of their new new account value. And in a lot of ESOP companies, that becomes kind of a moment of celebration and excitement. People do share price parties. Most most ESOPs do guess the share price, etc. Um, but it's over the course of time, as that grows, you really start to see a lot of power in that um, shared ownership amongst the whole team. Gotcha. And then so how does Empowered Ventures factor in then? So TVF is currently owned by the ESOP uh, and Empowered Ventures is going to essentially be wedged in as the parent company. So the ESOP is going to own 100% of Empowered Ventures and then TVF as well as the other companies, the operating companies that are going to be part of our portfolio over time, they are going to be you know, subsidiaries of Empowered Ventures as well. So Spencer, you alluded to it a little bit, but the, there's checkboxes that the ESOP model can offer to business owners uh, looking to sell. So what are some of the advantages for an ESOP when approaching a buyer or excuse me, a seller? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's I, I truly believe this is unique. And, and like I said earlier, I, I wish an option like this was available when we were uh, approaching the sale of my mom's business because it adds, I think, a few really tangible benefits, which is, um, one, how can you get a, a market price for your business? And so as part of an ESOP transaction, we have to engage a third-party valuation firm to say, yes, this is a, a market value that we're paying for this business. I think the other part of it, too, is how do you create uh, life-changing outcomes for the employees that are at these companies? And so uh, and Chris can talk about the, the incredible amount of success that they've had at Top Value Fabrics. But, you know, the the ability for these individuals who were employees now allow them to transition into owners. It's it's really created truly a life changing financial outcome. And, you know, as a business owner and in my mom's case, this was like, a, how can you reward those people to help you build this great business? And you can do that with an ESOP model because. When the transaction closes, those employees all become owners of the business and they actually get to, to benefit from the, success, the future success of that business. So, you know, not only is it the market price, but you're rewarding the employees. I mean, I think it's just it's a, a combination of, you know, I, I'm not big on analogies, but I think this one is so applicable. It's it's having your cake and eating it, too. And it's just it's it's truly a special outcome that I think is unique in the market as somebody who worked in investment banking and private equity and then led the sale of a family business. I just, I haven't seen anything else out there that really does this model and creates a holistic outcome for both the buyers and the employees who are going to become future owners. And to add to that, so the way I think about it, sellers of small privately owned companies, they, for most of them, uh, they've spent, you know, their life's work building this organization if they're a founder or they acquired it at some point, you know, it becomes their baby. Uh, it becomes their personal sense of purpose and meaning and legacy. So once they get towards the end of, you know, their time at the business and they start to feel like they need to sell, it's a really hard decision for them to even consider doing that first off. And second, they're 
a lot of them, I would say, are scared that whoever they sell to is going to ruin their life's work, do something to it, uh, to change the culture, let go of the employees they care about, go for short-term results over the long-term success of the business. So finding a buyer that they can really trust with their legacy is easier said than done, I think. You know, there are definitely great buyers out there that can be found that will look after, you know, a seller's company. But it is a fear that a lot of them have because, you know, there have been a lot of horror stories about what happens to a business that gets sold and then uh, ruined, essentially, for various different reasons. And we want to be that buyer that a seller can quickly get a sense for our appreciation for what they've done and what they've built and develop a sense of confidence that we're going to essentially be a steward of what they've done and and help take it to new heights, uh, but not not ruin the special culture and, and thing that they have created. You also alluded to it earlier, but how has the model worked with TVF specifically? You said it had been fairly successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we took the ESOP took over in 2010. And since then, you know, financially, we've had great success. We've basically doubled sales and tripled profits since then. And we've, you know, grown the business and taken on a lot of really great new projects to modernize the company, implement ERP and other projects. Um, but, you know, the, the soft changes, the more cultural changes have been really palpable as well. We've seen significant improvement and growth in like employee engagement and that ownership thinking that I love how your your podcast title it definitely resonates for an employee owned company because that's that's a key you know part of being employee owned is everyone truly embracing that ownership thinking and we have seen that I think to a huge degree at TVF do you have any comparative examples you've seen where you can look at your own culture and then you see a different culture without that model and there's you've noticed some differences within you know some of your employees and how they behave and look at the company? Yeah, I mean, the really palpable thing is every time we hire someone new, they come in and they're kind of blown away, you know, in terms of, wow, this isn't what I'm used to, you know, in a work environment. And it's it's not that we're there's a lot of great companies that are not employee owned. I just think employee ownership makes it easier to accomplish that kind of culture that everybody, you know, strives for because it truly does align interests and benefits in a way that you just can't do otherwise. But yeah, it's the new when people come and they join and they tell me personally how excited they are to be here and how different it is, that's really what gets me excited. That's super exciting. Is there what other things besides the the ESOP model specifically have you put into the culture to make that happen? It's really about um, spreading that imp- that ownership mindset throughout the business. Uh, so things like pushing decision making down, you know, to whoever should be making decisions, and also doing using to- uh, bottom up approaches for you know a lot of things. Like for instance, when we went through an exercise to establish our our core values and our mission and our vision, those types of things. We didn't start with me and what I think is, you know, they should be. We started with a truly bottom up approach so that the entire team ended up feeling very invested in the results of, of that. So we don't just have core values that I picked and put on a wall. We have core values that the entire team essentially came up with and agreed on 
to drive our culture going forward. Yeah, I think, you know, as an outsider, uh, when I first met Chris and, and started learning about TVF and, and what was going on and, the, and the, it, specifically the Empire Ventures model, you know, I was saying I was I kept asking myself, you know, how is this, you know, really different? What what how you know, I understand that employees rally behind being owners and, and you create some market value. But how, how does this actually translate? And, you know, Chris can talk more about it, but the, because he was the one leading this uh, at TVF. But it's the when the employees became owners. So historically, TVF was operating in a it's a textiles distribution business and they're, you know, it's a, a GDP ish growing business. So two, three percent a year when they did the transaction in 2010 till now, they've grown at a little over nine percent year over year revenue growth. And then, so I share that data point to, to, to show when the, you know, how employees rally behind and actually become owners. It creates a completely different culture and create completely di- different financial outcome and growth trajectory that, you know, I wonder, uh, would have happened if they weren't uh, owners of the business. What are some potential downsides to an ESOP model, either for employees or for owners selling to an ESOP model? That's a great question. And of, like, it's a, Fair question. There are potential downsides as with any owner buyer approach. The real downside or potential downside to an ESOP transaction is not, is a, is doing a, an ESOP transaction, but not embracing it as a cultural approach. So there have been a few ESOPs in, you know, in the country over the years that they did a, a transaction purely because there were financial benefits to doing an ESOP. But they didn't change anything else about how they ran the company. So it continued to be managed from a top down perspective. You know, they didn't really educate the, t- the team on what it means to be employee owned. There's a whole kind of approach to running an employee owned business that's just a little different and you need to make sure you truly embrace it as a culture and, and including your people in your processes. Um, if you don't do that, then if the business doesn't perform really well and the, the employees don't feel like it's helping the business and helping them, they could actually get resentful that they've been told that they're owners or employee owners, but nothing about the business is different and they're not, you know, they're not seeing financial results. So that's the potential downside is it could actually be a negative if you don't, if you don't, if you try to use it, but you don't embrace it. We had the same issue in private equity too is um, you know, a lot of private equity firms for senior management teams will treat, create phantom stock plans um, where uh, the management team will get some, uh, a phantom equity payout when, the, when they, the company gets sold again. And what's hard is that I think, you know, firms and, and, and we were faulted this too. I was faulted this too when, when I was in private equity is not really sitting with the management team and saying, hey, here's the value of what your equity is going to be worth. And it created this environment where people didn't fully appreciate how much their stock was going to actually, what is it going to create into and how much it could be worth something. Um, I think Chris, and as I spent more time with him at Empire Ventures and seeing what they're doing at Top Value Fabrics, they they really hone into here's uh, what the stock value is worth and what each employee's, you know, how it, how it impacts each employee. But I think that that problem not only can happen potentially in ESOPs, but it happens more broadly across the investing community. 
turning it back around to the other side. So how is the ESOP model from the business owners you've talked to so far? How is it perceived by them? Yeah. So we've, I've talked with quite a few potential sellers over the last year, even though Empowered Ventures hasn't been live formally, we've been exploring opportunities for over a year already and, and gotten pretty close on a few. Uh, one was very close. The reaction was what I hoped it would be. I think for a lot of private owners, it's excitement that they would have an option um, to get full market value and their employees join such a you know cool program. Um, so that possibility of their employees be, being part of our ownership team, it was it was exciting to a lot of the sell, potential sellers. Are you able to talk about how that process, at least the last few weeks since you, you now have a website and you're able to be a little bit more public with it, which is exciting. How has it been just recently? Spencer's been, you know, talking with a lot of our, you know, current opportunities as he's joined with the with what we're doing. So I'm going to let Spencer tackle that one. We've gotten a lot of interest, you know, I think and I think that reaffirms the uniqueness of the Empire Ventures platform and what it's offering. Um, you know, both from a lot of interest from sellers that we've been talking to, as well as um, business brokers saying, you know, uh, telling us about, you know, potential opportunities that aren't even on the market and saying, hey, I, I know this business owner. He doesn't want to sell to anybody. Let me make an introduction to you for you. And I think that's pretty special and as a testament to um, the differentiated platform that Empowered Ventures has and is building. Yeah. So how then, how then can you continue to build on that? So what's your, so if you're getting brokers who are taking sellers to you, what are your thoughts around trying to build that up even further? It's, it's really, you know, my focus, um, with coming onto the team and helping build this out is building long-term relationships. I mean, we're, we're going to be in the business of buying businesses and holding indefinitely, or so we have no intention of ever selling. So, I think about this as more of a long-term relationship building uh, business than just a transactional closing one transaction and being done. So, you know, we're in the fortunate position of having that flexibility to say, hey, let's let's build relationships with brokers and create a network effect of whether it be geographies or industries or company sizes that we think would be a good fit for our group and we could be a potential value add. Is there a region of the country that you're looking at primarily for acquisitions? Yeah, I mean, I, for us right now, you know, Chris and I, we're, we're talking about this and we're, you know, we're trying to be as flexible and having as, as broad of a funnel as, as, you know, as, as possible. I think off the bat, we'd love to find a business in the Midwest, just given we're based in Indianapolis. You know, if we could find a business in Indiana or Illinois or Michigan, Wisconsin or Ohio or somewhere nearby. That would be a great starting, you know, first acquisition or Empire Ventures. But over the next year and plus, we're going to expand that. And, you know, we, you know, then find a business out by you, Alex, and, and on the West Coast. And, you know, we'd like to grow that as much as possible. You know, I think we're being as flexible right now and really focusing on what's the right opportunity and, and making sure there's cultural alignment and then and then refining as we build that out. How related to TVF are these businesses? Is there a certain scope of industries you're willing to look at? And then like, where do you draw the line where the business model itself or industry isn't as appealing to you? Well, I guess two, two kind of separate answers to that question. But the main answer is that we're looking for primarily business to business, uh, manufacturing, distribution, business services, not necessarily related to TVF at all. We, we are looking for diversification. So, you know, looking outside the textile industry is 
is what Empowered Ventures is being tasked to do. Separately, we'll continue to look for add-on acquisitions. So we've done an add-on acquisition at TVF already. Uh, we'll continue to do that. And then in the future, once we have you know more companies added to Empowered Ventures, we'll continue to look for add-ons that make sense for those companies as well. So the long-term strategy is to do both. But right now, the focus for Empowered is to diversify through B2B businesses, basically. Spencer, has that been your area of expertise in in your own industry or, or your own experience so far? And has that been able to complement your work so far? You know, it's uh, Chris and I coming together. It's, it's actually, a, it's become a really nice compliment. So Chris has a lot of experience in distribution, in manufacturing. He grew up in a, a you know, manufacturing distribution services uh, family of businesses. And so I grew up in a family of owners and operators of services companies. And so my whole career has been focused on services companies. Either growing up, I worked in an investment banking group that focused exclusively on services companies. And then the private equity group I worked for uh, before selling my mom's business was one of the top performing services investors. So my whole experience has been in services, but that broadly includes some distribution and some manufacturing services. But I think Chris and I are a nice complement to each other covering the manufacturing, distribution, and services industries. With that current experience, do you intend to build an expertise, keep your expertise there, or is there another set of industries, maybe two to three, that you'd like to focus on, or do you prefer to remain a generalist across the board and just open to great businesses wherever you can find them? Yeah, you know, I, it's, it's a great question. How I think about it today is we're focused more on business model. And what are business model characteristics? And there's a lot of uh, applicability and you know, that you can translate from one business model to the next. So distribution has certain characteristics that you can apply to a services business. And I think that's where it'll allow us to be a more sophisticated partner as we're looking at businesses. But with that said, we, we are, we do have some, you know, investment theses that we are building out and saying, hey, we like this industry. We like the long-term tailwinds. We'd like to find something in here. But also, we want to make sure that we're being cognizant of our ability to be a, a true partner to these to these companies. You know, we don't want to buy something like, for example, we, we wouldn't do a B2C business today because our experience both lies in B2B businesses. And we want to be a, a true partner in this. And I think that makes us better as we meet with business owners. But also, as it becomes an ESOP, we can actually help them build uh, great businesses and achieve the growth that Chris has had at, at TVF. This is something I'll add to that, which is maybe a little bit off topic. But as we add these companies, the plan is to uh, build a pretty robust team at Empowered Ventures. And uh, of course, a deal team, the team that finds and you know evaluates the deals and accomplishes all that. But we also will want to add experts that can provide strategic support to all these companies. So there will be some synergies there where if we can bring on, you know, if we have a few different distribution businesses, our Empowered Ventures, you know, team will be able to, you know, develop our expertise around, you know, the industries that we're focused on. Having said that, we, I do think we are being somewhat opportunistic at this point. It's what we're looking for is not necessarily extremely differentiated from what a lot of private equity firms are looking for. But what's different about what we're looking for is the seller, the sell, what the seller wants in an outcome. I mean, that, that's what we're really wanting to find is 
a seller that's excited about us as a partner. And, you know, with that and a good business model that's already established for a successful business, you know, we think we can really create something special. And then are you looking to primarily use broker networks to find your businesses? You mentioned your relationships that you're developing with them. Or are you also looking at direct owner outreach for finding uh, potential deals? Yeah, I think it it needs to be a hybrid approach. So that the approach we're looking at is weighting both of them and, and putting a lot of resources behind both. And so not only do we want to develop strong relationships with brokers in the markets we're targeting, uh, because that has an implied network effect to it. But we also want to do, we're going to do, be doing, you know, what a lot of people call proprietary outreach, which is, um, getting in front of great business owners and, and developing those relationships. And those tend to have longer lead times, um, to when a sale process happens. But we want to get in front of those individuals to see if we're the right fit and, and find good businesses where we can be, where they value our offering and, and we value what they've built. Coming into this, I I assumed that proprietary outreach would be the primary focus, maybe even the only focus. But that's changed pretty quickly here recently as Spencer joined and also as I've increased um, on my own, you know, the conversations I've had with brokers, their response has been phenomenal. So we've had a lot of excitement with some of the brokers that we've talked to because what they're looking for is a differentiated option for their for their clients. And they've truly seen that in, in what we're doing. So that's been a little surprising for me, but, but very exciting. So it it created a new focus and avenue for us to, to build out, you know, our sourcing approach. What are you doing to develop those broker relationships as you, you grow and your brand awareness, for lack of a better word, increases? I think it's twofold. I think broker relationships can be really powerful because that has a network effect and canvassing the landscape of available opportunities. So instead of one person calling on um, opportunities, having those broker relationships creates a, a powerful network effect. And, and the unique thing with Empowered Ventures is that we're building something for the longer term. So we can forward invest upfront now into developing long-term broker relationships that um, some groups maybe that are more um, focused on near-term opportunities might not have the same opportunities that we would today. And then just from the the TVF standpoint, is there something you can do on that end to in- increase your the number of business owners you're able to talk to? Like, is there a network you've already built through TVF that you can use? Yeah. So there's... First off, there's our customers and our suppliers and and that network. You know, we do some outreach around that, especially as we've been searching for acquisitions for TVF specifically, add-ons or or potentially even customers. I think there we'll be a little careful how we think about that. We don't necessarily want to acquire any customers that compete with our other customers. So you know, we have to be, we'll be careful around that. But uh, when it comes to the rest of our network that we've developed over the years, so bankers, lawyers, accountants, professional, you know, networks in the area, definitely, we've already basically put the word out and had a lot of conversations. That's how um, some of the better opportunities we've looked at during the first year 
how they came about. Some of our board members have really large networks of business people that they have, you know, developed for decades. So through them, we've already gotten the word out a lot locally. And uh, I anticipate that will continue to result in some good opportunities. But as everyone who p- plays this game knows, you have to have a really big funnel to find the the best opportunities. So that's where the work Spencer is doing is so important for our our long term vision, which is you know to be relationship based and ultimately acquire you know lots of companies. Um, the vision is you know ten twelve plus companies within ten years, and to do that, we're going to have to use systems and relationships and systems to you know, get out there and, and find those great opportunities. Yeah. And then to that point, there must be a few businesses that you've you've come across or you've known over the years that the owners may be in early 50s and doesn't want to sell yet, but you know, in seven, eight years, they're going to want to sell. So how do you work on building those relationships while also keeping in mind that you want to acquire a company by the end of the year or by the end of next year? So how do you balance trying to find the immediate need to find a company versus continuing to build out those very long-term relationships that eventually lead to a sale, just not today or not very soon. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Spencer can probably answer this question as well because of the work he's already done um, so much of in his in his past. But the way I think about it is just being interested in people because even if someone has indicated to me like I may want to sell my company someday, chances are low that we'll, we'll actually be the one that they end up selling to. But I personally just get a kick out of helping them think that through. I mean, that's it's fun, right? To talk to a business owner and help them find what's truly best for them. Because side note, you know, I'm happy to help people create their own ESOPs. We haven't really talked about that. But if a business seller really wants to create an ESOP for his own company, that's just a single company ESOP, that might be the better option for them than selling to a holding company like us. There's there's kind of two different scenarios there that are pretty unique, actually. So I'm happy that, that I would I would get a huge kick out of helping someone do that down the road um, or find the right PE firm. You know, there's a lot of great PE firms. So I think this is about being a, a part of a really positive, collaborative approach of being in this industry, uh, which is, you know, to help each other find the right outcomes. And I completely agree with what Chris is saying that two things. One, we have the ability to be patient and forward invest in relationships. And two, with our experience in M&A and in the industry, we have a pretty good handle of all the different options that are available out there. And so whether uh, our group's the right fit, or as Chris mentioned, an ESOP might be a better fit, or maybe it's a, a different type of buyer out there, we're more focused on developing those relationships with business owners. And it, it, we find it fun um, talking through what their potential options are, whether it's us being the right fit, or maybe it's somebody else, and we can make those appropriate introductions. Yeah, especially to the point about search funds. So, you know, a searcher may come across a company they love, but and would love to acquire one day, but they can't because they, you know, they only have two years to find one. And so they can't spend time on that stuff that gives you guys that flexibility. So in that sense, who do you view as your your competitors for these these businesses? You know, I, I think anybody could be considered a competitor, any type of acquirer, whether it's somebody that I led when I was leading the sale of uh, my family business a, to a strategic acquirer, to a search fund, to a private equity group, or anybody in between could be, you know, quote unquote, a, a competitor. 
But I think that every option has a different value proposition to the business owner and is able to provide something different. And for our group, I think our offering is a lot different than, uh, as you mentioned, Alex, a, a search fund is, is focused on funding one business that they're going to acquire and run versus us. We're looking for several businesses that we are going to own for the long term and create ownership opportunities for employees that those employees may not have had uh, in other options. If there's a class in college that you could teach about anything you wanted, what would you teach and why? I think it'd be really fun to teach entrepreneurial finance. And that I think the reason for that is twofold. It's one, there's so many lessons in being an entrepreneur that, that I think doesn't get taught in uh, general education and specifically the financial uh, learnings that come from that, that can really propel an entrepreneur in helping them grow their business or operate their business. And, and those things can really accelerate uh, their growth potential. And I think the other part of it is just the engagement. And so having an entrepreneurial class tends to self-select people that are interested in the topic. And you, I think it would create for a very lively class discussion uh, that, you know, might not be as present in, in other types of business classes. What's a belief you had a while ago that you held strongly that you've since changed your mind on? Yeah, so, um, and I apologize in advance if this is too heavy. I just can't, it has to be the right answer for me. Um, you know, whether people are fundamentally good or bad, uh, I think is a critical question. And especially with everything we're seeing going on right now um, in the world, I think it's just so important that we all understand each other and, and appreciate each other. And to me, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's this like story of the two wolves. And that really informs my kind of the way I think about people now. It's also a, a serious black quote in The Prisoner of Azkaban. And it's essentially that we all have good and bad in us. And it's about which part we feed is really the net of, you know, who someone is. So I think we should be more optimistic about how who people are and, and what they're capable of. That's awesome. That's a that's a good quote too. My fiance hadn't seen the Harry Potter movies. So for ten days we watched all eight movies in a row and it was awesome. Now she loves them. Epic. What's funny is the Epic. I almost enjoyed the Harry Potter subreddit memes <laughs> more than the movie. Those are some really good ones. What's the best business you've come across? So there's this company that I got a, a chance to get to know a little bit. They make um CNC cutting tables. And what their their particular niche is that they provide high quality, affordable tables. Um, but what was what was really cool about this business is that they use their own tables to manufacture their tables. So with that dynamic, they were able to do some really cool things uh, like push the tables to their limits, like not do any maintenance to see, you know, when they would fail and and basically troubleshoot, you know, how to help customers by getting to know their machines in such a deep way. So I don't know, in so many ways, that dynamic just really informed that company's ability to provide outstanding customer service. So that, that's my answer. One of the best businesses that I've that I saw and have seen is a um, it's a it's a trash and waste company in Colorado. And normally you'd say, what's so special about a, a trash and waste company? But when I was uh, working in private equity, we actually partnered with the founder and entrepreneur at the business. And this company was based in the Rocky Mountain region. So think of the big ski towns. They were the trash company that picked up uh, all the different trash. And, and what was unique and actually made it the best business I've seen is how they use technology to make the business a lot more efficient. 
And so what that translated to is better route density, which is being more efficient and picking up your routes. And then that, that reduced the amount of time that uh, the track drivers and the trash pickup guys and girls were working to pick up trash. And that allowed them to have higher engagement because that freed up more time for them to work on other things with the company or personal projects. So it, it, it almost created this flywheel culture where as the company became more technolo- technologically advanced, it became more efficient. And then it created upper, other opportunities for everybody within the organization to take on additional roles and have more engagement. And it, it just it, it created for a very fun culture that I think you that I hadn't seen to date in an old world business like Trash Pickup and um it ended up growing, uh, the outcome of the business, it ended up growing to cover all of the trash within the Rocky Mountain region. So pretty much every ski town, it was the sole pickup provider and they were in multi-year contracts and they were picking up every week. And then because it was a private equity investment after four years, it ended up getting sold to a large public company, uh, which was a really nice outcome for the investors. But it was, I think to this day, just the entrepreneurial culture and the ability to think creatively and critically in an old world business like picking up trash was it was really cool very special to see and 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 frankly one of the best businesses i've seen from both a financial standpoint as well as a entrepreneurial leading edge standpoint in an old world industry what are some great businesses if you can describe any that you've come across through empowered ventures so far maybe not specifics but or names but what types of companies or can you give just some rough non-identifying examples perhaps uh one i've looked at before that was really interesting was a um construction uh, materials supplier what was interesting about them i won't name the, the the actual product line because that would be a little too specific but they're a niche provider manufacturer and provider of a a product that is mostly sold by huge conglomerates so the in their words they they set their their annual revenue is less than the annual scrap you know these large manu- producers and manufacturers from the waste of the manufacturing process so they just completely fly under the radar it's not even they're so small but for us they would have been a, a good sized business and they're very profitable so they're just completely unknown essentially to the the big players which is interesting you know in a sense yeah. So is there a, I guess we never talked about size. Is there a size range of companies that you're looking for? Or given your flexibility, are you looking more up and down the, the size range because you, you can and you're not, you're not forced up in markets? Our, our target size is one to five million of annual owner's earnings. Um, we, we have, we're in a fortunate position that we can go a little bit higher than that. And we have, we're in a fortunate position that we could go lower than that. But I think that one to five million of annual owners earnings is our sweet spot. And, and we've been seeing a lot of traction of companies in that size range. And so that's, I think that's, that's exciting for us. And, and, and we're in a fortunate position where we're well capitalized to be able to execute on that strategy, do uh, acquisitions of those sizes. Is there a topic you've been dying to, to talk about that I haven't asked yet? How about um, what we would do with a company once they've joined? Once a, once we acquire a company and they become part of Empowered Ventures, something that we are excited to do because we've already done it at TVF is not change anything about what is, makes that company special, but start to incorporate elements of employee ownership into the culture in ways that the people will 
probably be really excited about. You know, whereas a lot of times when a company gets sold, the employees are quite fearful about the future and you know, it probably takes a while for them to get comfortable with a new owner. We're excited to be able to go in and uh, we have pretty much a system of, of processes and approaches that we can bring to the table that will onboard them into an employee ownership culture and environment that ultimately I think will bring you know, great results to, to the business. So that's something that we bring that's truly different, I think, for, in terms of what happens to a company after it's sold. What are some specific steps, perhaps, or best practices you bring to companies to help show them that 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 ownership they have in the company is real and they can act on it and they are direct beneficiaries of it? So a few things come to mind. One is we'll we'll definitely create like an ownership committee um, where you you put a a non-management, non-leadership from different parts of the company, put them in, they they join by volunteer, they volunteer to join a committee that has responsibility to promote culture, engagement. You give them a budget and they essentially do a lot of the fun stuff. They plan parties. They, you know, they make sure people are having fun at work, but also it's kind of on their, it's something they do is to educate the everyone about how this really works. So we would go through a process to educate them on how an ESOP works. And then they take ownership of that. And going forward, they educate new employees. Like, what does it mean to be an ESOP? So it'd be that, that engagement group. Uh, that committee that would help new employees understand what it is that they're getting into and why it's a great thing. Outside of that, we do other things that a lot of companies are doing now, but you know, not everybody, but like an employee engagement survey. We use a, a pretty new platform called Amplify that's based out here out of Indianapolis. And it's a really modern employee engagement uh, software measurement tool that provides just terrific insight into the business. Um, so we're able to manage on a quarterly basis our engagement levels and and drill down and understand you know what's really happening amongst our team um, amongst a, a whole litany of different categories about that drive engagement essentially. So those are just a couple, but you know it's really all about making sure you're eliminating kind of that top down perspective. I mean sometimes it's even just symbolic changes. When I first took over TVF as president, we got rid of the vice president and president parking spots immediately, and it just sent the right signal. I mean, we got a fair amount of feedback on that because those had been there for 40 years. You know, it's just stuff like that. You just look for opportunities and ways to say, you know, this really is a new environment now, and everybody has an opportunity to step up and, and be an owner in a way they didn't have before. I know we've talked about symbols a little bit before, but what are some other symbols perhaps within Empowered and then TVF that you've been able to change towards you know, more employee friendly or employee ownership base? You put up signs everywhere talking about employee. It's kind of like you it's propaganda, right? You just it's good propaganda. You just find ways to keep it top of mind for everybody, you know, in terms of symbols, I mean, adopting an internal culture like maybe naming it. We haven't done this at TVF, but, you know, naming your culture, definitely doing the core values. I think that's critical. Um, it might not be a symbol per se, but uh, na- actually developing what's acceptable from a, a culture perspective. That's that's important. Flag, put up a flag like we have an employee ownership flag. You know, it's just it's it's embracing it in every way you can think. And in some ways it's like patriotism, right? You you have a flag, you have 
you know, it's just, it's something you, you try to develop as the way people think about the organization they're a part of. Thank you both for coming on. This has been really fun. I'm glad we got to finally do this. I know we've talked a little while uh, back and forth about doing a podcast of sorts. So this is, this is great. And I'm, I'm glad we got to go over the ESOP model too. It's one I've been really interested in. So thanks for, thank you both for your time. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information, including show notes, transcripts, and other links, please visit alexbridgman.com.